Last time on Video Night. Brain dead puppet people. Zombies. The robot. meat grinder. <laughs> this is like my cinema night. But it's got Gary Busey and Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and now. Video night. Hello, Michael. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. You're going to keep up the robot voice, aren't you? Just oh, every episode. Yeah, yeah. Robot. robot car. <laughs> robot car. So the climate lately has been very, uh, well, for the last two years or so, very tense politically and whatever with white supremacy and white nationalism and all that stuff right there's a slippery slope between the two of those white supremacy nazis and white nationalism but they're both not too good so this episode we're taking on four films that have to do with fighting nazis modern day and of course the original og nazis i can't believe i just said og nazis <laughs> og original gangsta nazis <laughs> I'm, so, I'm just stupid i'm so stupid um i like to wear my adidas shoes and my kangaroo hats run dmc's oh my god i had no idea i can't listen to them anymore i guess i'll listen to kid rock <laughs> So, so you suggested a movie that I was like, heck no, this is dumb. No way. No. Yeah, I know. I had to push and prod a little bit. And then I watched it, and I was like, okay, wait, no, I totally get it. What is that movie? That is Best of the Best 3. Tommy Lee is coming home to Liberty. But Liberty is not the town that he remembers. This is white man! Their sacred oath must never be compromised. Get off my property. You know what those people are doing to this town? When hatred is religion, we will create our own nation. <laughs> and violence is law. The race war is imminent. Remember, your blood is red like mine. The only hope for peace. Kingsmen, arise! You get yourself killed. You can walk away is war for one man. Can't we all just get along? Liberty is worth dying for. Best of the best. Three. No turning back. And I totally understand why you would say this because I watched all four of them and I sat through the first one going, how did, how did they make three more of these? This is so boring. And the deal is, they never made three more of these. They just used a character or two in each of the following. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of sequels are like that during that time period because it was hard to either budgetize everybody or realize that most of the people suck. Killing Chris Penn off in the second one was the best idea ever because his character was a huge racist. Which one was that? Best of the best one. He's a big old Texas ball making fun of all the Asians. Oh, right. That guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last time I checked, you were in martial arts. Why would you get into martial arts? If you hate Asians, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, either. so but I look, I haven't seen the best of the best series in a long time, and I never actually saw the third one. I saw the first one and the second one, maybe the fourth, uh, probably not. The second one is a traditional action movie, a rescue sort of movie, right? Well, it's a fight rescue movie. The first two are like in competitions. So the first one's a legitimate, uh, like Olympic style competition. Yeah, kind of like the Karate Kid. Right, and so that one's like the Karate Kid concept. Like, let's take this to more yes olympic as you said yeah and then the so second one's more kumite like blood sport stuff. you know with a bit of rescue in it and the third one i'll say actually the fourth one is kind of a typical boring oh i've been set up for a crime i'm fighting these drug lords cyber nazi whatever i can't remember what it was but i remember some sort of like german guys doing cyber crimes and it just seems like a typical like hey hbo is gonna burn this off on a friday night kind of
a movie. Yeah. Part three has a lot more weight to it than the rest of the Good movie. Good golly, part three and has a it's lot really surprising. to it. There's a lot to it. It wasn't even a best of the best movie. It was a movie just simply called No Turning Back, which would have featured a black marine returning home from like the Persian Gulf or something. And in such, he comes upon a white supremacist group in his town. That's the story that we get anyway. Except now it's not a black guy, now it's an Asian guy. You know, there's a movie with Steve James a few years before this. I want to say it's called Riverbend. Where it's like that, where he's a military guy coming home from his, you know, the, the I think it was like the Vietnam War and found his whole town's falling apart due to white supremacists and stuff like that. Very hard to find movie. It's actually not that bad. Mm. Well, Walking Tall is actually like this too. But it's kind of in vain with this movie. Uh, well, in particular, the rock version of Walking Tall, except the bad guys, as corrupt and evil as they are in that movie and well portrayed by the actors. They are not white supremacists, they're just bad, right? Yeah, just corrupt hicks. Right. In here, you have Arlie Ermey as a pastor of uh, sort of a mega church, or he wants it to be a mega church, and he's networking through this sort of white supremacist. He's actually more a white nationalist character, and he's got a bunch of henchmen who are the white supremacist characters. He doesn't want the violence. They want the violence. He just wants the numbers and the money. And, of course, the purity of his race. Our cities have become war zones. The streets of our neighborhoods are littered with welfare babies. Our jobs have been stolen from us and given to the immigrants. And the Zionist government does not care. Well, we here at the Church of the Aryan Crusade care. And because we care, we are here to help. Working for ourselves, we will create our own nation under God with liberty and justice for our children and our children's children. That's Arlie Ermey. I was like, immediately like, what? This cast is very interesting. Arlie Ermey as the perceived big bad guy. And then Chris McDonald is in this. Who's usually a bad guy. And he's a good guy. And then you have, I don't know the other actors, but you have a bunch of heavy actors like they play the heavy characters and they're the neo-nazis and as the movie goes on like i said it's like a walking tall sort of story there are skirmishes here and there until the big one this movie took me by surprise because of how entertaining it was but this is also 1995 when none of this was actually in the forefront of anybody's mind i don't recall any no and what's also surprising is it, you, you've seen the series it seems like the budget is going up with each entry when clearly there was like very little box office for the first two and the third one went straight to video but it looks like at least an eight to ten million dollar movie whereas you know who does that the only dimension and then this is when dimension was kind of testing the waters of sending stuff either to limit limited release or straight to video mm. they did this in men of war for christmas of 95 they packaged it with judge dread it's huh. kind of like a, a cross promotion thing and men of war and best of the best three are clearly worthy of being released in theaters it's just you know not sellable names right well if they didn't release the second one in the theater there's no way that they're going to release the third no the second one did fox picked it up and distributed it and it made like six or seven million Oh, wow. Shows you what I know. The first one, I kid you not, the first one only made like one and a half million dollars, but it did so well on video yep. that Fox picked it up for the sequel rights. And I'm like, no way. That would never happen now. Video and home market, meaning HBO and Cinemax and stuff like that. Right. Heavy rotation. 
So Eric Roberts was in the first one. He was in the second one, I think, right? Yeah, they, they cut the cast down. They got rid of James Earl Jones, Sally Kirkland, and they killed Chris Penn off pretty quickly. Well, here, Eric Roberts was offered to reprise his role, but it would have been inconsequential, basically a cameo. And it would be distracting to the importance of the story. So Simon yeah. Reed... The well, the third one feels like almost an overhaul of the concept. Philip was really into this story and the whole... Well, actually, it makes sense, too, with the whole Japanese internment happening in World War II, that there's this underlying racism against people who we seem, uh, we being white people, see as outsiders, which is really stupid because everybody in America is a dang outsider. Everybody. but Except the Native Americans. Except, yes, except the Native Americans, and you know how we treated them. It's awful. So, Philip was really into this story, and it shows. He gets to be the, the super kind of, uh, I would say like a Jackie Chan, but I, I, I don't want to mean like fun style no not in a humorous way yeah um no he just feels like what what it feels like kind of like a western in a way it's like the guy who comes to the broken small town that he hasn't been to let's say he was way at the civil war and he comes back has been taken over by outlaws a a corrupt governor to bring justice yeah you know usually movies that are written directed and starring an action star usually garbage we talked about this on the last episode with the quest and on deadly ground usually it's a vanity project but you know philip reed wasn't a big name and he saw this is a chance to steer the franchise in a different direction and stop being so generic because at this time there was a thousand of those fighting competition movies and most of them were straight to video jump yeah and this is a way of presenting you know martial arts with a substantial story with a social commentary where it's not just and you got a good cast it's not part of it is i think that weinsteins are really willing to pony up for gina gershon chris mcdonald arlie ermy even a d wallace stone and i cannot remember the bad guy's name but he's from aliens you know he's the the one that gets the acid all over him as as they're escaping. All right, big guy, Mark Ralston. But what was his character in Aliens? Private Drake. Yeah, that's probably his most well known. I mean, he popped up here and there. He was in the the Crow TV pilot. He was in Blue Streak and stuff like that. I think he's in one of the Lethal Weapons. But he's one of those guys that's just a character actor. And this time he got to play the heavy. I think he's really good in this, uh, even though he's playing it more theatrical than maybe some other actors would. But usually with directed video movies or lower budget movies, he pushes his jaw out and gets written. He's really like, I'm tough. I'm a big man. That sort of acting. I got my hand up by mustache. Yeah. But yes, everything was like very surprising. I'm not going to say this is my favorite of the bunch that we've got, but it was very surprising how everything was handled without patronizing. Yeah. They were like, we're going to treat this story seriously. And-, and, and still, it's not boring. It's full of action. That final sequence, I thought the rocket launcher sequence was, uh, at the time, astounding. I still think it's pretty entertaining the way that it's, I mean, it's a little contrived how it was set up, but <laughs> I was like, hey, it works. And that's right. something I've never seen before. So it's not bad. So I, I think you uh, were successful in suggesting this one through all of my... There was one that I was not successful with, and it's kind of connected to this movie is that Simon Ree was one of the main villains and fight designers on The Substitute 4, Failure is Not an Option, which is about a neo-Nazi group that infiltrates a military academy, and Treat Williams goes undercover, whatever, to, to expose it. Yeah, I'm not going to watch The Substitute. Nope. They get, just get worse and worse. No, no. The fourth one's actually probably the, I would say, probably the best one. I just love Treat Williams. Mm, I know you love Treat Williams. Angie Everhart is one of the main characters, and she has got to be the worst actress I've ever seen in my life life to have ever been named above the title. (laughs) 
Well, but this one is a, is pretty solid for the type of movie that it is. 1995. It's it's better than I expected, definitely. Which is a shame because after Part Four, Philip Reed, I think, made one other movie a couple years ago, and that's it. He's he's never appeared in another movie. He's never directed another movie. It's just this one movie with the worst name I've ever heard of: Underdog Kids. Just call them the Underdogs. Don't call them Underdog Kids. That's just stupid. <laughs> Okay, so green room. I see moon rising. You can't keep us here. You gotta let us go. I see. This will be over soon, gentlemen. Get ready to run. Shoot who is left. Let him bleed. I can't die here. So don't. I knew before it was even out that it had serious promise because the director Jeremy Saulnier had previously done Blue Ruin, which yeah. was my favorite movie of 2014. Oh. And I was eagerly awaiting this film, and it is not for the faint of heart. You know, you kind of get a sense of the rawness in Blue Ruin, but man, Green Room just hits you so hard that it sits with you for days afterwards. It's a haunting film, horrifying film. Yeah. I don't believe it's too... It, it doesn't... Here's the weird thing is there's neo-Nazis as the villains, but I don't, it doesn't seem to be the focus of the story. It's not. It's ironic. All right, let's get... I'll tell the story real quick. Very naive, very idealistic punk band is on tour. They do not have digital downloads. They don't have a social media presence. They cut 7-inch on vinyl, and that's about it as far as their physical media goes. Music is shared live. It's time and aggression you gotta be there and they are refused a show because the venue canceled on them and all that so the guy who set up the show has a cousin where, where is this in oregon is it in oregon shit it had to be oregon yeah okay before we get into this can yeah. i say something real quick i grew up in indiana you grew up in california right no no, no you kind of moved around a lot but did you experience racism like this overseas because it was kind of a normal indiana thing no because u.s air force is a melting pot the kind of racism that I experienced was often towards this is not at all an excuse or reason or anything, but towards white people. And it's kind of understandable in some regards. In other regards, it wasn't understandable at all. Especially me, because I was nice to everybody. So the racism I experienced was uh, being called honky and huckleberry, stuff like that. But that was rare. I didn't see white guys be racist, Asian, anybody be racist to black people or vice versa, usually. Yeah, here it feels like Indiana all over again. I miss California because I barely ever ever experienced any racism. But you know, I grew up in the city until I was 13 where it was mixed race and, and, and everyone was the same. But then I moved to a country town and the first thing is uh, I get into science class and this kid, he's like, uh, hey, you uh, you from the city, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, there are a lot of neighbors there. And I'm like, oh shit, this is the town we moved to. Great. Jeez. Like, and and it would just go on. And it's just amazing how much they hate black people in that, in that uh, town. So here they go to an Oregon town, and I don't remember how far inland or what. Oh, inland. Okay, so here's the thing. Oregon, a lot of people think that the coast is where it's like enlightened. 
this not. It is the strip up the middle. If you go from Medford straight up, you hit Eugene, you hit Salem, you hit Portland, and it's it's everybody's mixed, you know, and people pretty tolerant of each other. You get out to the coast where it's like 90% old white people, you know, and dumb shit rednecks uh, who get up at 5 a.m. to kill an animal. You know, that's their that's their day. You know, they shop in camo because they're still hiding apparently upon the, uh, oh, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be asked for help, so I'm going to wear my camo in the store. You know, these people are all over the coast, and it's just not what you expect because California coast, it's the exact opposite. Right. So here, these kids go to this venue, which has a house band, Cowpuncher. They, speaking of killing animals, they just play any show with anybody. You need support, so Cowpuncher is going to open for you. And these kids come up, and the first song that they play is... Thank you, that was a cover. Hey. <laughs> I forgot about that. Right? <laughs> and they're so, they hate that. Yeah, yeah, so that's really, really gutsy of them to do that, and really foolish of them. Kind of what were they expecting, except they were just expecting to get their stuff and leave after their set. But they walk in on a murder having just happened, and then they're stuck quite literally and then they're surrounded on the outside and there there's one of these uh, actors who is now in the tv show twin peaks the newest season of twin peaks he plays the huge skinhead big justin who uh the littlest the drummer reese knows jujitsu and a lot of people who saw this movie the first time you watch it you miss all sorts of details the second time i watched it this time one i wasn't nearly as traumatized the first time i had ptsd i couldn't stop thinking about this film for months it would come and go and then something would make me think of it and i would just fixate and feel the wounds i was wounded by the first viewing of this movie a friend of mine actually took me to the theater he's like oh you gotta watch this and he basically sat back and enjoyed me suffering <laughs> through the film <laughs> i say suffering but i really do like this film like you like blue ruin i i saw blue ruin and i liked it but this to me goes even farther so they're stuck in this room and the detail i was saying about reese knowing jujitsu he gets mad at the promoter who screwed up their show and he grabs him the drummer tiger just simply goes all right mr jujitsu calm down he just throws out this line really quickly which sets up that later he's going to actually use his skills and you think that he's the guy that knows everything like how to handle this tense situation he's get, got the guy's arm in a figure four or whatever and he's about to break it type of thing and it's all so tense yeah well it's like everything you think is going to happen okay so you got your big names and you think they're going to do certain things and it doesn't happen they take them out of the picture at times and then you know or they're useless and then you know the ones who start to show off they're going to be the heroes and then they change their status and, and just it's constantly moving around who is going to survive and it's horrifying because even up to the very last minute you think oh well no it's a, it's, it's one of those movies they're going to die anyway you just don't know what's going to happen so you mentioned a about the Nazi ideals. They are obviously Nazis. There's swastikas, there's Hitler stuff all over the place. There's Nazi paraphernalia, regalia, everywhere. There's no mistaking that this is a Nazi tavern. But you said that they don't really push that as far as dialogue or political ideals. Actions. Yeah. Yeah. Except Alia Shakat is constantly being catty towards Imogen Poots' character, who is a skinhead girl, sort of. 
but she keeps on calling her a Nazi. And she's like, I'm not a Nazi. And in the background during a dialogue, because it's a couple of moments of overlapping dialogue, she was confronted and like, well, why are you hanging out with these people? She says, because these people here don't want to kill me, didn't want to hurt me, didn't want to rape me. Implying that people where she was originally from did and that they weren't white. Which I found that to be an interesting little detail there. Because she's like constantly saying that she's not one of them. And it's obvious by the end of the film that she's not one of them. They go to take them out. Their big boss though, uh, the big Nazi boss is a guy named Darcy played by Patrick Stewart. And another thing that backs up what you're talking about, about them Nazis, but not pushing a Nazi ideal as villains. Because they always do that right movies always go see Heil everywhere and like very carbon copy version of what nazis are here he's just basically worried about his merchandise and being busted he doesn't want to be busted by the cops because he's a drug pusher you know what's weird is i noticed about i noticed about both of these movies best of the best three and green room mm-hmm. it's always seems to be an older person capitalizing on the innocence of youth most of their soldiers seem to be young guys yeah you know that are angry and uh, disenfranchised. You notice that what's going on in our in the real world. You know, we're they're finding guys that are teenagers in their 20s up to like early 30s. And there's another movie like this called Pink Cadillac with uh, Clint Eastwood, which is not a good movie, but it has that story of Eastwood fighting these white supremacists, or whatever, and they and they capitalize on a lot of these angry young white guys. Yeah, they're and, they're uh, marginalized. And, and they're poor. That, these are white people that for all of their life they've been told that white is wrong i mean i keep i keep hearing it being a oh you're a white privileged you're white 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 you're wrong by default which i actually don't believe that white people are wrong by default i believe that anybody who believes that they're superior over another is wrong by default that's what i believe so these young guys are often it's literally terrorist tactics they how isis gets their young men they preach an ideal that appeals to those vulnerabilities and falsely fortifies an exaggerated maleness or masculinity that isn't a true masculinity you're a man because you do this abc not def def all those other people who do that you know anyway i don't know if you follow what i'm saying i do totally it's it's really messed up but here he's using his those foot soldiers as means to secure his crime empire and it's heroin that's what he's pushing he's not so much concerned with pushing his ideal about white supremacy as he is about securing his uh, empire i would not be surprised if in the real world that this was a thing that actually happened how did these how did the white supremacists you know the, the, the kkk how do they fund themselves and a lot of these guys can't get jobs they're too angry they're too anti-social i mean we're in a world now where really the only jobs left are customer service <laughs> i don't see a whole lot of angry frustrated people doing well so i would not be surprised that kkk was funding themselves through illegal means yeah one of them is trying to defect two of them actually are trying to defect a guy and a girl and that's where the whole problem happens uh, because the guy daniel is uh, also gonna most likely turn state's evidence against darcy because he's got evidence wrapped up they find it in his trunk it doesn't end well for just about anybody because our heroes reluctant as they may be lived through a traumatic experience i watch all kinds of garbage 
violent stuff sometimes. And this is the one that affects me and stays with me. Imagine if this was a true story, how those two survivors would actually feel. Oh. How do you go back into the yeah, real oh world? God, yeah, yeah it's, it's rare when movies sit with you and haunt you. And uh, I think it's been a while since I've seen one that really disturbed me. And I would say Green Room is an excellent film, but it's not for the faint of heart. Oh, heck no. It is not. It's for an adventurous viewer. <laughs> Put it that way. Be an adventurous viewer. Adventurous. Worst adventure ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not it's not Remo Williams. Indiana Jones and the holy shit, what did I just watch? <laughs> Speaking of fighting Nazis, right? Our next yeah. movie is Indiana Jones. Can you imagine that there's people out there who actually were siding with the opposite side, like, oh, fuck that Indiana Jones, beat him up. Yeah, I hope that propeller whacks his hat off. <laughs> uh, so our next movie is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. No, it's not. Our next movie is Inglorious Bastards. I'm putting together a special team. We're gonna be dropped into France dressed as civilians. We're gonna be doing one thing. Killing Nazis. See how feed us into your Nazi boss. From director Quentin Tarantino. You're now in the hands of the SS. Some heroes aren't in the history books. Nine, nine, nine. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Glorious Bastards. Rated R. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, at this point, it's Indiana Jones and where's my Geritol? <laughs> oh, my arthritis medicine. I can't. How are they still making an Indiana Jones movie with yeah. him as a lead? I don't it know. It better be like, let me tell you a tale of when I was young. You right. Know? <laughs> I, I have no idea, nor do I care. It's Indiana blah, blah, blah. My favorite one actually has nothing to do with Indiana Nazis. Jones. Oh, God, my it, back. It's Temple of Doom is my favorite one. <laughs> Leave me alone. Don't at me. What? Don't at me. Temp what? Temple of Doom. No, what? Huh? Shush. So, Inglorious Bastards, let me ask you, have you seen 1978's Inglorious Bastards? I have seen every single Fred Williamson film ever. Trust me on this one. I think I actually have. <laughs> it's embarrassing. And I've seen every so, single Peter Hooten movie. <laughs> all right. So, Inglorious Bastards, the ancient one, is just a bunch of uh, American criminal soldiers about to be, or they are being shipped off to a prison for bad soldiers in World War II. Uh, when their convoy gets blowed up and then they run off. End up killing a bunch of Americans masquerading as Germans and then they pick up the Americans' mission and take on the Nazis. Some, something to do with a missile or something. It's kind of a Dirty Dozen type yeah, of movie. Totally. Italian made, I do believe, right? Yeah, and then there's a sequel called uh, Inglorious Bastards 2 Hell's Heroes, I think. All right. Most of those Italian movies, you know I love them, but I also know that they're all terrible, and you just you just like roll your eyes okay. every time I say <laughs> I love all them. All right, yes, exactly. So knowing that plot, when you heard that Inglorious Bastards with all the wacky spelling, the O-U and the E for Bastards, when Tarantino was making this, you heard about it before he even... Yeah, and I remember something about it being with Adam Sandler and a bunch of other like comedians, and, and I think Eddie Murphy was supposed to be in it, and it was a whole different beast than what it finally turned out to be. Now, what did you think when you heard about it, though? Like, did you think it was going to be a remake? What did you? What were your thoughts? Well, I know that he doesn't do remakes. I know that he does homages, love letters to a certain genre or multi-genres. So I knew it wasn't going to be a straight-up remake. Because here's the weird thing. I, I'm not alone in this, but it's not talked about very often, is when you remake a movie, why is it always remaking great movies? Why isn't it remaking a movie that was an almost? You know, ooh, it's so close you know just missing something you know those are the movies that they should be remaking why is it they're always remaking like this is a perfect film don't don't screw it up why 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 right okay i'll answer
answer you. The answer that they would probably get is to say a modern update. Basically taking the exact elements of the old film and updating it to our current date. Yeah. It's a known IP. We can't throw that but away. It never works out that way because updating it to the current date doesn't have that other filmmaker making the film now. So it's going to be different. Sometimes it's going to be wrong. Sometimes it's going to be great. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You want to take a movie actually like the original Inglorious Bastards and remake it, but then you would just have another, because that was a carbon copy of The Great Escape or the Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen type movie. So Italy was very big on carbon copying jaws and whatever zombie movies <laughs> lots of lots of shark movies lots of zombie movies lots of escape from new york and mad max and dirty harry rambo just insane how many a lot of blenders of all of those together yeah <laughs> except for the world war ii ones so macaroni combat is what they refer to him as oh really yeah i didn't, you know. didn't know that oh i'm such a nerd no. i'm such a nerd i'm so ashamed well inglorious bastards is a totally different project than what the original titled film was it's great the trailer works it is just a squad of jewish soldiers who to me hardly any of them look like they would actually be up for this which i think that's hilarious no <laughs> i was actually like mm, all these guys look like they uh they're high school mates. yeah kind of like sort of dweebish i mean i love sam levine and he's in this but he's got minimal parts he's got a the scene it's during hugo stiglitz rescue and He's running with a big old machine gun, just blasting Nazis. Huge machine gun, little dude. That's the reason why the scene's amazing. It's only in the trailer. I was... I was gonna say, because I didn't remember seeing that. I was like... Mm. I was so bummed that it wasn't in the movie. But I, they just shot so much. Tarantino does this. He shoots enough for a whole season of a TV series as a whole movie. And then he just cuts away at it until he gets the perfect length, perfect little movie. And I actually think that this is his masterpiece. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. I think this wow. is his movie. Like, he may have done all these... Gr How do you feel about the first decade compared to the second decade? What are you talking about? Of uh, his movies? Okay, so in the first decade, we have Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. Then we have Kill Bill, Death Proof. I'm not the fondest fan of Jackie Brown. What? But <gasps> that seems to be because it's not his material. Maybe. And I would like it to not be an adaptation of somebody else's work. His unique voice is more suited to himself but you know what i haven't seen it very many times maybe just once so i don't know in, I don't know. in my opinion that is his most confident film after jackie brown didn't make very much money i feel like he got nervous hmm. and then everything seemed to become a hodgepodge film ah uh, well i kind of like kitchen sinks yeah but but i also didn't want to puke in this movie either i think i feel like there was a scene in every single film after jackie brown that just like oh whoa, that's testing my blood level oh boy oh okay well reservoir dogs has this really incredible construction and i love it for that and i love tim roth and the whole monologue of tim roth learning the backstory of his character and how it's intercut where he's constantly telling the story in different scenes and settings is amazing i love it pulp fiction it was pretty cool it's just a cool flick it's got a lot of cool to it right there's no denying it and its construction is also non-linear and interesting i said the jackie brown thing i'm not the most familiar with it but i've seen it at least twice kill bills I dig Kill Bill. 
one more than two, but they're the whole bloody affair together. It's great. Yeah, and it's, I like two more than one. I know. You're, it's it's more um, contemplative. You know what? Maybe now I might like two more than one, but at the time I liked one more than two. And then Death Proof, on one of my other podcasts, we talk about Death Proof and how before of the two Grindhouse films, we liked Planet Terror more. But now that we're older... <laughs> more thoughtful viewers, we watch Death Proof, and that movie has so much more to offer than Planet Terror does between the two of those films. So that's kind of where we are. I, I mean, Django, Django's good. Django's got some flaws. Django's good until the orgy of blood at the end. Yeah, it's got some out. flaws. But this one, I think, is the one that's most consistent, especially of that era that you're talking about, from Kill Bill to Django. Now, I did not like this movie the first time I saw it, and I was actually hesitant to watch it when you suggested it. First off, it's the only one that had legitimate, like, old-school Nazis. I was like, well, we could just do a whole episode in my head, but I was like, well, we already did The Rocketeer, whenever we right, do Indiana right. Jones, Sky Captain, yeah. and The World of Tomorrow. Was that Nazis? Or was that just robots in Germany? I think guys? it's just robots in Germany. It's a eugenicist, at least, which was one of the concepts uh, that uh, Hitler took to as eugenics. But anyway, so you, you were hesitant, yeah. but uh, you came around because i was and i have to say i started watching it and i was like uh because i actually don't care for the bastards everything else in the movie is astounding but the bastards themselves uh either it was grotesque because of the scalping or i just didn't give a shit about the characters because he spent no time on anybody except for like the main two okay. and i was just like this uh yeah i don't i i think the inglorious bastards thing was just an excuse to use the term or the title inglorious bastards yeah and to have that cool monologue about i want my scalps right but <laughs> but what what do you do what do you do with the scalps what do you do with them afterwards does he you tan, store them you in tan a them wear? you tan them i don't know what? you tan them and make a suit out of them that's disgusting but there's gonna be 500 yeah 600 is that what they did back them. in the day did the apaches just keep the scalps around or they're like yes uh, i'm gonna open a market and just trade the scalps uh, uh, ooh, uh got this one got this one got it got it need it got it got it need it <laughs> just trading scalps <laughs> that's ridiculous <laughs> so you have a couple of German-speaking bastards here. Hugo Stiglitz is one of my absolute favorites. He is played by Till Schweiger, and I mentioned that scene earlier where they break oh, him. Oh, I forgot. Till Schweiger is, is, is amazing in this. Why is it he's so poorly used? I don't. Why I really don't know. Maybe, maybe it's cry. because his German accent when he speaks English is a bit nasally. I don't know. You know, I'm actually speaking more like Christoph Waltz, but he, he's got a little, uh, you know, especially in SLC Punk, he's off the hinges in that. Oh yeah, the laser disc. Uh, the laser disc, right? He's uh, all, uh, and the magician's his voice is shrill, is kind amazing. of shrill. Till Schweiger, Hugo Stiglitz. By the way, Hugo Stiglitz is actually the name of an actor, Mexican actor, in uh, exploitation films in the seventies. That's why Tarantino named a guy Hugo Stiglitz. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a Mexican. Yeah, he's name he's a um, well, a lot of Germans went down to Mexico, you know. You know. Oh. Yeah, no. World War Two. They fled south of the border. Mexico and South America, uh, even before World War II. I should know this from X-Men First I mean, Class. like, Three Amigos had German arms dealers, you know, but that was before, that was in the 20s. Right, right, right. But there's another actor, Wilhelm Vicky, Corporal Wilhelm Vicky, played by Gideon Burkhart. Now, people make fun of the German accent. They make fun of German speech so much, so hard. They're like, uh, Bridget von Hammersmach, du bist eine Börsenfräulein. <laughs> right? Interesting, but stupid. Right? 
So it's like this really harsh, nasty yes. sounding thing that. Hogan! But but Gideon Burkhardt, when he's talking to that Nazi about, like, what are you going to do with your suit? That's when they cut the forehead. Swastika, the first time that we see mm-hmm. it. He's got the manliest, sexiest dude voice ever speaking German. I'm sitting there with my wife, and I turn to her, and I'm like, that dude's got a sexy voice, and she's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> just like, yes, indeed. And he's just really subtly and quietly talking to the guy in German. And I'm like, see, right there, German's not an ugly language. If you don't have an ugly voice, German's a lovely-sounding language. And it is. That's just a little... That's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awkward. Uh, so it's it's funny is uh, this was kind of ground zero for most people with Michael Fassbender. Yeah, yeah, he had been in other stuff before this, but I mean he and I didn't I did not realize he was in Three Hundred until I watched <laughs> it years later. Right, right. I, I I think I realized that, but like r- really super tough method actor <laughs> Michael Fassbender is this beefy beefcake in 300 what that's silly because that that movie's a silly movie yeah they're just the macho fantasies it's just ridiculous and now every old school movie you know set in sword and sandal times it copies its fight sequences it's so irritating the two sequences in this that make the movie for me that are just absolutely i have to, I, I don't like subtitles i just i don't i don't know how to read that well i don't have the patience for it um, I'm kidding about the reading part. Um, <laughs> I read comic books every day. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> Mike, uh, the scene where it's Diane Kruger, Michael Fassbender, and... Um, Till Schweiger. I can't remember the other actors. Getty and Burkhardt. You know, when they're meeting uh, at the underground bar. That scene is astounding. And every single second of it is just like, oh, I'm sweating, sweating, sweating. Go away. Go away, Nazi guys, so they don't get caught. And the second one is actually the... Uh, I don't know who she is, and I've never seen her since, but she runs the cinema. Ah, oh, Shoshana. That she's yeah, in is amazing. Melanie. What's her name? Melanie Laurent is her name. French actress. Has she been in anything else that I've seen? That you have seen? Mind you, I only watch cartoons. You have probably not seen her in anything else. Okay, but she has a sequence where she runs into Christoph Waltz the first time, and she is trying to eat that dessert, but the whole time you can see her panicking, but she's such a good actress that you know only because you know the previous story. She's hiding it really well until he leaves the room, and I'm just like, who is this? Right. She is amazing. And then she like freaks out and just like it's just it's just a silent scream, facial expression, and it's amazing. You're right. Those two scenes are just incredible. Yeah. And in Christoph Waltz, of course, this is this is where everybody saw him for the first time. And his character is so brilliant in that he's not your typical Nazi. Oh right. Neither is Daniel Bruhl. They're very charming. They have this weird. So it's like a condescending smile. But you can see there's something they're hiding underneath. And you and of course you see Christoph Waltz loses it later mm-hmm. when he goes to strangle Diane. Kruger, and the same thing for Daniel Brühl's character when he's rejected, and he's like, I'm not leaving this projection. Yeah, it's interesting how Daniel Brühl's character, and let's talk about him for a sec, how he is the character that's the Nazi Sergeant York. He shot hundreds of American soldiers from a bell tower, and as he's watching the film that he starred in about this up on the screen he's shooting american soldiers and he's troubled by it like pt yeah that's what i was wondering it was he troubled or was he no 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 he's troubled bored, frustrated he was troubled he, he, he kind of didn't like talking about it anyway yeah. it's very subtly played but then especially when they 
show those scenes over and over again of him. Eli Roth, by the way, shot the black and white film, Nation's Pride, I believe it's called, for Tarantino. Yeah. By the way, that has to be the worst movie ever because it seems to be uh, the entire film is him up in that sniper <laughs> tower shooting people. <laughs> is that the whole movie? Yeah, I mean, right. That's actually literally what the footage is. The, the entire footage, he has a couple of shots of American soldiers uh, talking in English, and I wouldn't, I, I don't know where the Nazis would have gotten those American expats. <laughs> like, were they soldiers? Uh, that yeah. they were prisoners? POWs? You must say this Is line. Is it weird that or die. we've actually made military heroes into stars? Now, mind you, there's a lot of actors who used to be in the military, but this is literally like Audie Murphy was a war hero that we turned into a movie star. Mm -hmm. That's weird. So Audie Murphy starred in this story about Audie no, Murphy. Nobody should really star in a movie about themselves. It only worked for Howard Stern. That's like, the rest of it seems just ridiculous. <laughs> Did it? Did it really work for Howard Stern? Oh, I like that movie quite a bit. I know. I'll let you be the judge. I enjoy. Yeah, it. I know. But you were saying, you know, his his character is troubled by all the murders and everything. Yeah. Like that. And the the point what I was trying to get at is, it does seem like a lot of the most sinister people are always having this condescending smile. I worked with someone who every time you and this is a it, it revealed itself during the election. Mm. You know, you know what side we're on, and I knew that she was on the other side, and she's very, very fundamental, like almost beyond. Almost extreme, like uh, what, what do you call those? Uh, what's that family again that was in Red State, or they did like a parody of uh, the Westboro Baptist Westboro Family Church? Yeah, it, she was almost that far. Ah. and you had to sit there at lunch, and then she would constantly go on these like rants about, oh, Michelle Obama is a man, you, you know, and, and showing us videos that were obviously manipulated to show that she had a penis as she was dancing in some sort of sequence or something. Like uh. that. And she was constantly going on all these things, and then constantly promoting Trump and stuff like that, but. Every time you tried to say any sort of logic or reason, she would have this weird condescending smile like, you stupid poor little thing, like I was a dumb animal or a child. And then later, you know, she would show these moments of like extreme violent rage and you're like, whoa, what the hell was that? Wow. But that's what it reminded me of Christoph Waltz and Daniel Brühl's character is that they just have this like smile covering up. And they do that in a lot of serial killer movies too, is that they act like they're so pleasant, but there's this demon being covered by the, the, the pleasantness. Yeah, I keep on coming back to this, uh, this, uh, there's like a biblical concept where it might have been the book of Revelation, which may have already been fulfilled many times over. It's just an apocalyptic story and we're constantly living through crazy apocalypses, uh, as a history, the history of the world. And they will be given over to the wickedness of their flesh or like their own wick wickedness or whatever. And that kind of applies to how people just are runaway trains of their own worst nature and you just can't stop them yeah no matter what you do it's and that that's how uh, these guys are but but brule in this he's interesting because that so we saw this in the theater and lb was like did we even watch this again after the theater and i was like i think we watched it once she's like i don't remember so we might have only just seen it twice but i do believe we'd seen it this is our third time more than likely but i didn't remember that he got explosive on her being all like stop rejecting me like that scene came out of nowhere to me because Brule is a cute man guy who is pleasant especially in this film but like you said there's some sort of dark thing there 
in spite of the moment where Tarantino humanizes him by having him visibly regret what's on the screen. Moments later, he goes up and tries to kiss her, and she rejects him, and he gets really, really mad. That seemed very surprising. But at the same time, it's surprising, but it's realistic. The problem is, is that we're so used to seeing certain behaviors on the big screen that we don't see reflected in life. Oh, yeah. And I want to say that our final film has moments that are so unbelievably realistic that I actually wanted to cry because oh, yeah. I was like, this is how people really act. This is how they have a conversation, damn it. This next film. Okay, so Inglorious Bastards, we've run our course. I like it. You probably like it now. No, I liked it way more now, but I have to say that first scene with the Bastards was so boring. By the way, I love that at the end, when Christoph Waltz reveals that he also speaks Italian, Yeah. and Brad Pitt's like, ah. Yeah, like, yeah. How he's holding his lip is humorous <laughs> to no end. He just keeps holding his lip in a certain way and keeps kind of smacking it like, yeah, oh shit. He looks just like a Howard Chicken drawing. If you look at Howard Chicken's yeah. uh, style, it's I know what the you're talking about. Same look. I know what you mean. It's uh, such an obscure reference. <laughs> yeah, it's a comic book <laughs> reference, everybody. Howard Chicken's a comic book artist. Draws manly men. Big square jaws, perfect hairdos, macho men. Yep. So the next film, you also suggested this, and I was like, what? Are you serious? Because I thought that this was a totally different type of movie because of the kinds of movies that he had coming out at the time. He actually wasn't able to do a lot of movies because of Miami Vice. Yeah, and this is back when TV shows weren't like 13 to 22 episodes. This is like a network has a hit. They're going to go, well, I guess we're doing 26, we're doing 28, we're doing 30. Yeah. You know, this in, in your pound, and you know, so it's hard to fit in a movie. Plus, you had an, a music career. So, right, but he's, this is starring Don Johnson, and he was able to work this movie in to his schedule because of the writer's strike that happened. That's what I was wondering. I was wondering if this was something that was able to get through because of it. Because you ever notice when there's a writer's strike, you get movies that usually aren't made coming out like crazy? Yeah. Like, you'll get like a couple dozen, like, why did this, this is a $25 million movie, who greenlit this? Yeah. Like, the first time you saw Jason Statham in Transporter, nobody would have done that if they went for the strike. Ah, interesting. Well, this got done, and they only had one more season of Miami Vice that would happen. So this was done in between that. It came out during that last season, I do believe, but was shot before then. Came out in 89. It's called Dead Bang. It started with a death. Do you believe in God? Yes. It's going to end with a bang. Is there anyone that would be afraid to go through a door with me? When a murder becomes a war. White supremacy. A cop needs an army. But I'd go through a door with you anytime. Don Johnson. Dead Bang. So, you suggested this. I had no idea. I remember seeing a trailer for it on TV. I was kind of out of watching Miami Vice by that time. I think he had his music career, and I didn't like his music. And I didn't like the follow-up films that he tried to do, like um, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. (laughs) That's a classic. What are you talking about? (laughs) you got to be joking. No, man, I gotta tell you, that scene when the boot's tearing off, and he's like, I gotta tape it up, I love these boots! And I wept, and I wept, and I said, this is an American classic. So you're joking. <laughs> Are you clearly joking? Yes, I'm clearly joking. Is it clear? Uh, sometimes sometimes I'm a little oh, slow with your God. jokes. Yeah, you know, and I also have terrible taste in movies, so that's, a, that's actually a good question. <laughs> so... That sort of thing. This movie, I knew about the hot spot. Of course I did. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly, naked. 
Uh, no, that that's not why I knew of it. I knew of that actually because of HBO and Cinemax and stuff like that. Those would show those. They would switch and they would show those. And of course, I saw that, but it wasn't. That wasn't the appeal. Her naked. I was just uh, an adventurous kid at the time, watching as much strange stuff as I could, or genre stuff, or thriller things, or whatever. Yeah, I was watching a lot and, of action uh, movies. Hotspot. This is Dead Bang came out when See? I first started like renting movies. Like I was able to walk over to Kelch, got my parents' commission or whatever. And, and this is when I started bugging the guys. Like, hey, you got American Ninja Three Blood Hunt available? No, damn. Six weeks later, you got American Ninja Three, and the guys like stop asking. And I started looking at the poster for Dead Bang. I was like, hmm, that looks interesting. I almost got it. But I didn't because I just wasn't into cop movies, especially serious cop movies. Yeah, see, I thought this was just a detective movie. Like uh, like a 48 hours, but not funny. Something like that. But this movie actually is kind of funny. It's weirdly funny. There's the- a lot of funny moments in this that are authentic. Like, it's how people really behave. Yeah. It's how they really react to each other. There is the scene that made me... I'm not kidding when I said I almost uh, came to tears because there's a sequence in it that we'll discuss a little later that was so natural and well-acted. I'm like, this is how all action movies should be. They shouldn't be always Shane Black written smart-ass comment joke bullshit, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I love Shane Black, but they can't all be Shane Black movies. Well, this is a Christmas movie. So there's your Shane Black in. <laughs> there's a detective. Our detective, uh, Don Johnson, is either divorced. He's totally divorced, yeah? Yep, he's lost the rights to his kids. He's lost his wife. Can't talk to the uh, kids. He is completely broke. Yeah, he's... Is he a gambler? He's a drunk. He's a drunk. But... But is he... I cannot figure out. Is he a drunk because of the situation? Or did he lose his family because of his uh, A little bit of both, I think. I think he drinks because he's a detective. And picking up the details, I used to listen to this podcast where a detective talks about the hard cases that he had. And they stick with you. And a lot of people try to self-medicate in order to forget certain key details out of horrible crimes. So, after the case is said and done. But they haunt you. And I think this guy's haunted by a lot of the cases that he worked on. We don't get into that, but, I mean, I'm just picking up pieces dropped, you know, clues. We don't get into his past cases, and there's no past case that comes up, and this is connected to it. This is just a detective who sticks his hooks into this case because it's the only thing he's got. And he does not let go. No. I mean, and, and people are bugging him. It's like, it's Christmas Day. Leave me alone. And he's like, no, not even a chance. I, I have to. I know. love that. Bob Balaban. I was hoping that it would become a buddy movie for, with him for a minute. And it was for like that 10 minute s- stretch of film. Bob Balaban scenes with him are just amazing. Yeah. Well, here's the weird thing is it becomes a buddy movie like two or three times. But here's the thing. The rest of the movies in this are all fiction. This is a true story. So it's. I feel like it's trying to be authentic as possible. So he's always partnering up. Yeah, well, no, don't get me wrong when I say buddy movie. I simply mean two unlikely people teamed up to, to meet an end and they get there together. That does kind of happen, but it's not done in the typical 48 hours or Eddie Murphy kind of buddy cop movie yeah. kind of way. Haha. As you said, there's so much authenticity. I mean, it, it plays to the fact that Jerry Beck is. Uh, kind of losing it. He's on the edge. I love the fact that he pukes on one of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's at the <laughs> end. He's crazy, like, point break parkour uh, chases through the streets or whatever, and he finally catches up to him, and it's not like some wise-ass line that he's got. He's like, oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that's at the end of the Bob Balaban sequence, too, and it's amazing. 
It's just so I love good. That he, I love that he threatens him. <laughs> he threatens the guy into talking. He's like, please don't puke on me again. <laughs> right. So John Frankenheimer did this, and I actually don't like a ton of his movies, but I like... No, a lot of it's macho bullshit. Yeah, I like Ronin a whole lot, and I like Dead Bang a whole lot. I can't believe... Like, both Elby and I were watching... She was watching this with me. She usually does the research watching with me nowadays. And she was like, this movie's great. And in fact, she was also kind of like swooning over Don Johnson. She's like, I was too young at the time to even notice. But dang, 1989 Don Johnson. Dream about heart eyes. Can I say that I feel so confident in this film being amazing that I thought that he deserved an Oscar nomination? Dude, he's so good. Everything is so good in this. Like, Oscar nomination of on-command puking scene? I'm joking. That is real puking, right? I swear it's real puking. (laughs) I don't know, but it looks pretty good. (laughs) Well, the the plot is this. There's a dude... (laughs) I forgot the plot. Let's get to that. Yeah. There's a dude who's going around is shooting... Well, he shot a a clerk, a black clerk. And he says some racist things about the guy. uh, And then he kills him. Point blank to the face. And then a cop hears about the description of the guy walking... And he sees a guy, and he pulls him over, and the guy's just walking down the street. So the cop pulls over, and then he gets shot in the face by this guy. Merry Christmas, officer, and shoots him in the face. Well, Don Johnson follows clues to this guy who happens to be a white supremacist, who he and his crew have been going around doing the same sort of thing elsewhere. They shoot up a, a Mexican bar, which looks just like the most accommodating pleasant group of people they're like feliz navidad and then they're like get on the floor and then they kill him it's awful and those guys are interestingly enough a big fat biker version of a white supremacist yeah two versions of the white trash skeezy type white supremacists and one skinhead type white supremacist just so they got all their bases covered these are the archetypes of white supremacists you remember how you remember how in 80s movies like deathless 3 where the gangs are always like interracial yeah you know they're just like oh we got we got people of every kind it feels like that but only white guys just different types of white guys and this isn't of course this isn't white nationalism bring like this is our heritage this is all nazi stuff eventually we learned that it's all nazi stuff all 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 way nazi stuff and this actually has a little bit in common with best of the best three as far as the compound and having a preacher involved yeah basically having the whole time you know there's moments in this that are terrifying that aren't obvious terrifying do you know the part where don johnson arrived i think it was in colorado and he's freezing his ass off and he goes to that sheriff's office and he sees the sign and the guy's so oklahoma oklahoma and he's just so matter of fact about it that it's makes and there's this sign Cute sign, Chief. Yeah. ACLU, the commie Jew bastards. Made us take it down. Used to be out front. Don't make no difference. It's it's one of those sundown towns that he's in. Do you know what that is? Well, I do now. Is this still a thing? Very few oh pockets. I'm, I'm not sure. Sundown towns, for those who don't know, are if you are not white and the sun sets on you while you're in the city limits, you better run. Or else they're going to send some boys after you. Yeah, rough you up, throw you in jail, rough you up, lynch you, rough you up, drag you behind a truck. Various things. It's awful. It's horrible. I don't understand it. I don't understand that mentality. I can't get with it. Nor should you. No. 
Um, Nor should anybody. I don't get this thing where... Do you, I think it's weak people who need it. Weak, broken people who need a villain so they seem like the hero in their own heads. And they just pick somebody maybe who's just... Maybe I, I think... I do understand disenfranchisement. I get disenfranchisement. Being a youth who feels like you have nowhere else to go or no no way to go, and then you've got a bunch of people that tell you the wrong ideas and they sound convincing. I understand the theory behind that, but I don't feel like I would fall for it. I don't think I have fallen for no, it anyway. No. It's, it got close though. When I was living in Huntington, uh, you know, you sit with enough people and they start trying to convince you, and you sit there and you listen to it enough, it starts leaking, it's you know, into your brain a little bit. And I remember I had been there for three years, and we went to New Orleans. I mean, it was New Orleans, or it was Charleston, South Carolina. And I remember walking down the street with my mom and my sister, and for some reason, I saw three black gentlemen and I told them we need to get across the street immediately like to the point where i was almost causing a scene and absolute shame oh, i know how old were you i was 16 16 i like to lie to myself dude. for a long time and say that it was because there were just three big dudes and it didn't matter what race they were but i know i know subconsciously that it was and you know i was there for 13 years in that town and i think it had some serious repercussions and Every once in a while, I have to remind myself that I'm being a piece of shit and I need to knock it off with whatever line of thinking that just popped in my head. Yeah. So if it gets to you early, it seems, it might stick with you a little longer. It's really unfortunate, but I'm glad that you're not that way now. Yeah, it just, I, I think, you know, of course, and it's not a news saying, but you have to be taught to hate. Exactly. You have to be taught it. Prejudice is actually learned. Yeah. So here we have part of his trail. He talks to the brother of the guy that he's chasing tate donovan plays that brother and he's just very accommodating like i don't really know i'm just staying here from college i don't know what's up i'm not my brother's keeper though he doesn't say that line that yeah, and it also shows you that not all racist people are stupid it's, it's not all you know it's uh, sometimes well, we don't even know brilliant. well okay i'll say a spoiler alert we don't even know that that kid's racist we just know that he's staying in a dump no but no no his, remember they say that his brother is just as intelligent he had an iq of 136 oh i don't remember that but no it's when they're doing the profile before they go to that house as oh. they say both are brilliant one went one direction to college and the other one went in the other direction huh and i just thought it was interesting that they, they they're both brilliant people but even they can have this thing in their mind that they cannot shake yeah well the big brother who is on the lamb after killing a bunch of mexicans you see his teeth yeah that was a good detail is anybody in this movie wearing makeup because i feel like everybody is as is yeah the guy's teeth are disgusting. They're like rotten teeth, and uh, he's he's really like smirky about everything. So he's constantly baring his teeth while he's smirking. Really gross. Yeah, they look like real people. Everybody in this looks like a guy you work with, you know, just someone you run into every day. Not a movie star. No, not even Don Johnson because he looks bad, but yet still good. Yeah, you know, no, he, like he looks. Guy. He looks. He's Don Johnson because he's a beautiful man. So then, but he's a disheveled beautiful man, which then makes him look authentic. <laughs> The disheveled part yeah. goes, oh, he's normal. He's like us. <laughs> I think it's funny is that William Forsythe's character is meticulous. Yeah. Which is weird because knowing that actor, everything you had seen before and somewhat after is that he was a mess. Oh, okay. Like, look so at Stone Cold. I was about to which, mention this. Is Stone Cold another white supremacist movie? Uh, I No, I think that's just arms dealing. I'm not sure, though. Just, okay. 
Just bikers. Bikers. Uh, but bikers are kind of lumped in with white supremacy a lot. But William Forsyth, as you just said, he's often cast as a heavy of some sort, a slime ball, a creep. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, he was in Dick Tracy as Flat Top, so there he gets to do some different work there, but he's still a bad guy with a face, and he's got a very unique face. But then sometimes he plays a good guy, and I like it when he plays a good guy, and he plays like kind of a gentle guy. But here, he's a stick of the mud. I believe he might be he said he, I don't remember, is he Mormon or is he Christian? I'm pretty sure he says some type of being a Christian. I don't think he says anything about being Mormon. Yeah, yeah. But you know, so it's when, when they're having a conversation, this is the scene that made me like so emotional filled, is when Don Johnson's giving him the details of the case and he swears and the guy is uh, severely offended by it and he goes It's one professional to another. I would appreciate if you would minimize your constant use of profanity. You're kidding. No sir, I'm not kidding. I'm telling you something's going on here. I'm telling you something big is happening here. And all that grabs you is my language? What the fuck is the matter with you? It's a good example. I'm a Christian, Beck. I'm sure that seems like probably a joke or something to you. But I find your language personally offensive. If you need me for anything, I'll be at the Marriott in Oklahoma City until 9. My flight leaves at 10.05. I'd get a cold weather coat if I you. You could freeze to death in this weather. Instead of having some prepared speech, like a lot of writers make these like meticulously put together scripts, he just goes, Okay, all right, um, hmm. And then he notices the detail about his glasses right in the middle of him talking. And that shows you not only uh, Don Johnson's character and how he's still like, just like, what? Uh, stop distracting, let's get back to the point. But William Forsythe's character is so tightly wound but also detail-oriented that yeah. you pick that out. It's very strange, and I'm glad that they did it, that Forsythe is in this film against type. It shows that he's he can act. You, oh, like, raising Arizona, he plays a dumb hick, you know? Yeah, well, he's good um, in Cloak and Dagger. A lot of people forget that he's in Yeah, that. cartoony, over-exaggerated. Here, he's under-exaggerated. Everything, he's just, like, straight right. and narrow. And, man, he's so frustrating because he's doing everything by the book in the worst possible way most of the time he seems to be (laughs) obstructing justice even though he's not it's by the book you actually question if he's part of the bad guys because because he keeps sabotaging things because of his by the book well yeah like when they finally go to the compound they find the hidden room the the big old preachers like get off my property you've done searched everything there's nothing here, and he thinks he's won. All the Nazis have put their guns down because it's private property. They can have all their guns. They've all put their guns down, playing it nice. Well, there's a, a rat tunnel underneath the compound, and they find it. And then Forsyth pulls out the bullhorn and is like, This is the FBI. We have a federal warrant for the arrest of Robert Bobby Burns and three John Doe accomplices. You're completely surrounded. Surrender immediately. <laughs> Holy... What? Shut up. Just shut up. Don't... T- why? Why did you? It's so frustrating. But he's got to because he's FBI, you know? Yeah. And I, I really like Tim <sighs> Reed. I'm a, a huge fan of Simon and Simon, WKRP, and Tim Reed. Is, I think this is the only, like, real movie that he was in. And he's really good in this, too. Uh, I feel like he's a severely underrated actor that didn't get his due. Uh, yeah, I like him as, like, I like all of, Chief Dixon is who he plays. He's got a crew of, I believe, all black sheriff's deputies, and they're... <laughs> I think that's uh, decidedly done to juxtapose against the white supremacists. And I, I love it, actually. It's really good. And they're all really cool dudes, too. There's something about seeing black cowboys, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Ah, oh, Posse is a really good movie. Yeah, it's just hardly ever see them. And yeah. they're sporting the big old hats. Now, Michael Jeter's in this. 
as well. Oh, I forgot about that. As the psychologist and uh, psychiatrist uh, who's examining Don Johnson, and he finds Don Johnson unfit for duty because he laughs at him and calls him, like, you look like Woody Allen. And so he's like, uh, even psychiatrists have feelings, so he's going to not let him get back on the case. And this is the part where you're like, holy crap. Uh, did he just do that? (laughs) Because Don Johnson grabs him by the throat and says, If I get pulled off of this case because you look like Woody Allen, I will not be responsible for what I will do. If you've got some dues to pay there, then by God, you pay them because I will not. I will fixate on you as the instrument of my destruction. And you will never feel safe in your world again. Dude. How do you... I guess it worked. I mean, it did work. Intimidation like that. He got back on the case. And the story, as it unfolds, he succeeds in catching the bad guy. But it's not just the bad guy, because his brother is actually the villain that started the whole thing. Tate Donovan. I said spoiler alert earlier, so who cares? But that... This movie has a little bit of predictability to it. Just after he busted or killed the major bad guy, then I was like, it's not... It's not over. Something else is going to happen, and it's going to be Tate. It's going to be Tate. Because the guy's like, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Eh, I'm dead. And then it was Tate. Like I said, he wanted to impress Big Brother. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times in these movies, if they don't immediately wrap it up, then you know something else is hanging. Yeah. If it lingers a little bit, you're like, hmm, something is still going to happen. Yeah. And so it had that little tail waiting. And I was like, eh, Tate's going to show up. Because you don't have Tate. I know Tate wasn't a star or anything at the time, but this was an early movie of his. This this is still a movie in which he was featured face and time significant enough that you're just gonna waste it right there gotta come back later anyway i love this movie good good i'm really happy you like i it. think it's and, and you finally got to see yeah dude here's the thing is that lorimar sold the rights to their movies to warner brothers and they only did like i think six movies action jackson probably being the most well known hmm. and that's about it and most of these were dumped warner brothers had a terrible thing where they would dump these movies onto DVD as full screen only. Next of Kin, Dead Bang, Action Jackson, and a few others. And I've never been able to see. And, and John Frankenheimer is a guy who shoots wide. Not John Carpenter wide, but wide. Yeah. And I was so disappointed that it was yeah. like a shitty pan and scan at best. And finally, just in the last year, they finally put out a, a uh, upgraded version, widescreen, and thank goodness, because it's a movie that needs to be discovered. Now, Penelope Ann Miller is in this too, which I thought was um, kind of almost an inconsequential moment in the film. The cop who gets murdered at the beginning of the film by Tate. She plays his wife. So she's a widow. And then she meets Don Johnson, seduces him, and then tries to get him to murder the villain, would whoever would be responsible for her husband's death. But she plays it like, I don't know, I actually did I wanted to tell you this stuff, but then I didn't. I didn't follow through with asking you to murder him. He's like, I'm a cop. I don't, I'm not going to kill a guy. That's not my goal. My goal is to bring him to justice. He ends up killing the guy, but that's besides the point. Now, in the original cut of the film, there's a moment where they bring her back towards the end as if they were going to reconcile because that's kind of a betrayal. But they kept that out of the film, and I'm not sure it was necessary that they bring it back or not. No. What do you think? 
to bring it back would seem too Hollywood. I, I like the way that it ends as if, you know, I mean, it's a true story, so they should end it like that. I mean, did, did she come back in real life? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's funny that uh, this is such a good movie from a director who had been past his prime and, and t from two writers who just wrote TV stuff, like shitty TV stuff, like Knight Rider and stuff like that, you know? And uh, that brings us back to the beginning of this episode. We've gone full circle! <laughs> Well, thank you for suggesting Dead Bank, because I otherwise probably would never would have watched it. So I'm really happy about Dead Bank, especially also Don Johnson. It's another thing of his that I can like, because I usually don't like his stuff. And it's not that I don't like liking things. I'm picky. That's all. No, he's always good, but he seems to be in a lot of really beneath his standards like I, I was watching this Nicolas Cage movie Vengeance a love story mediocre really well done action but of course Nicolas Cage is asleep at the wheel the budget's like two million dollars but he pops up for five minutes as a lawyer and he's so insanely good in it that you're like could we just have his story instead <laughs> yeah and cold in July he's great in that Oh yeah, it's amazing. Super good stuff. So he's just a guy who continues to work because he is really good and he should never have done Nash Bridges. That is such low rent. Oh, my mom and dad are going to watch this on a Friday night because they're not going out kind of entertainment. Hey, it was beneath his talent. Job's a job, right? Yeah, but I feel like there's better jobs out there. Ah, uh, there are. As example with this film. So I think that's it. I think uh, if you want to watch some kicking Nazis into teeth movies, watch these. Some of them are going to be like, yeah! Some of them are going to be like, oh, no! <laughs> but they're all good. What is our next topic? I think we're doing dumb dudes. Dumb dudes! I gotta have something lighter than this. Yeah, lovable dope. <laughs> yep. And we're not going to talk about Half-Baked, which so, is about lovable dope loving lovable dope. <laughs> no! Alright, everybody, be excellent to each other. Auf Wiedersehen! Got it, got it, need it, got it, got it, need it. I like to wear my Adidas shoes and my Kangol hats. I got my handlebar mustache. Leave me alone. Don't at me. What? I'll let you be the judge.